Hiya, I'm Sarah Archer and you're listening to episode 16 of the Speaking Club podcast. Waka waka! Yes, it's comedy month. Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast because making them laugh is the secret sauce to your speaking, pitching and business success. And now your host, Sarah Archer. Hello and welcome to the show. Yes, it's comedy month. I thought it'd be a good idea because we might need a little bit of a pick-me-up now the festive season is over. Even though January can be the gateway to a fantastic year and I hope it is for you. Um, My guest today is Ashley Freeze. He's a musical comedian. We had a blast talking about comedy, about why it's important to our culture, the things that uh, comics can teach us about improving our speaking and all sorts of really good stuff. He's a funny guy. I'm sure you're going to have a blast too. So I'm not going to hold things up any longer. Here we go. Over to my conversation with Ashley Freeze. Thanks for joining me on the Speaking Club, Ashley Freeze. Hello there. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Now, we're recording this show in December. So we're still potentially full of the Christmas cheer to come. Well, I am because I can't speak for you. Are you a fan of Christmas, Ashley? Uh, yes, yes. The, with, with two kids, it's, uh, it's all go and it's a very exciting time of year. Because although we're recording it in December, the show is actually going to be going out in January when we're all feeling miserable and upset with ourselves for spending too much, eating too much and maybe getting a little bit too drunk at the works Christmas do. So I'm hoping that along with some useful speaking tips, we can cheer people up a little and maybe make them forget they're back at work. I've got loads of questions for you. Okay. Um, The first one is, how did you get into stand-up? It's a very long story. Shall we go back to childhood or shall we just well, do it from 2003? Let's just go as far back as you want, Ashley. We can, we can always edit it out. <laughs> Great. Okay, now, now I get to find out how interesting my childhood is as to whether it makes the cut. Welcome to January, people. This is going to be fun. So um, uh, Sarah Silverman, the US comic, she describes stand-up as, as almost like a, a coming out thing and a bit of identity. It's something you always know you, you are. Um, and I think that probably resonates with me. Uh, as a kid, I used comedy as a way of dealing with social situations that weren't much fun. And I realized I was playing the Joker, or I was being the Joker as some sort of a life skill. And at some point um, sort of later in life, I, I realized that actually it was something I had to do because that monkey was inside me somewhere, that it's, it's a thing I am, it's a thing I do. And I, I think a lot of stand-up comedians would say that they often feel like an outsider looking in. And that's something I think I've felt over the course of my life. So when I got the opportunity to get into the comedy scene, it kind of all came together. It all kind of made sense that I could do what I do, didn't have to be part of the crowd because I was that person on the outside doing, doing something that made them laugh, which is, I guess, a part of my personality now. That's brilliant. No, I, I think it's right. I think... I think a similar thing. I think I always used comedy when I was at school was, I'm going to get the joke in first so you can't make the joke about me. I don't know if you used it in the same way at all. Com- completely. So taking ownership of the things that people are doing to, um, to try and shame you and then using that as a weapon against them so they can't. And it's all, I mean, you know, welcome to this miserable January. We're all talking about <laughs> our tough childhoods. Um, but I do think that that idea of using comedy as a as defence or, um, or reducing the power of somebody's words by, by having them and, and playing with them. I think that's a big thing. And actually, we talk about Brexit and Trump and whatever else is going wrong this January. And um, 
actually a lot of comedians are taking those same ideas and by the by use of satire or ridicule trying to take some of the sting out of the te- out of the tail of, of of the big things in life that hurt us so comedy itself is i think a really important uh, really important cultural tool it is. I mean, it's an outlet for people, isn't it? Just as a as a sort of group. I mean, we we use comedy to sort of come together and laugh at things that are you know are bad. Especially the British. I think our sense of humour, particularly, we laugh at bad. You know, we make light of bad things because it isn't a way of dealing with it. Really, absolutely okay. right. Completely. I, I did a show with a friend of mine a few years ago, seven years ago now, where we talked about this and um, talked about the almost as like a, a vaccine effect of stand up. Yeah. And it's like a, an inoculation. The joke we used at the time was it's an inoculation against the bad <laughs> things in life. Never got a laugh in the show either, but uh, <laughs> I, I still stand by that, that word, inoculation. Um, if, you, if you can laugh at something that's, that would hurt you, I think it does reduce its power. And it's, it's really important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, so you got into stand-up and then were you always, because you're a musical, I, I guess I would describe you as a musical comedian, but is that what you started out doing or was that, you know, or were you doing straight stand up first and that came later? How did that work? So, um, again, if I look back as to the things I've done before I actually became a comedian, I've, I've always loved funny songs and, you know, learned a guitar in order to be able to, to, to do whatever. Um, I came into stand up properly in about 2003 when um, a long term relationship had ended and I was reinventing myself and I'd always said I was going to be a comedian and so I kind of called my bluff and said well go on then go and do some <laughs> damned gigs and um, at the same time as doing that I started doing musical theatre I started writing songs my, my little heart was was <laughs> keeping me busy and um, it all all the pieces kind of came together I, I think my, my love of uh, musical theatre gave me a lot of interest in very tightly written song lyrics um, I took to the stage doing my stand-up routine with a guitar with me but I barely used it and somebody it was a, a promoter's wife very well-known promoter's wife who um who said to me you know what you see most yourself when you've got a guitar in your hand and I was like okay I should write songs then and that was singularly the best and worst thing that could have happened to my stand-up <laughs> career because I'm not that good a musician it's very nice of you to say that, that you think of me as a, a musical comedian um, and I think a lot of musical comedians find there's a bit of a glass ceiling in that they can't really get booked on the same bill as other musical comics or they're not considered to be a legitimate form of comedy. But in, in, in other respects, if you think about what a song has to be, it has to have the right timing, it has to have the right structure. And so some of the stuff I was getting wrong with spoken material, I had to get right in order to create songs. And so it gave me a real, a real boost in terms of my, my writing and the effect I was having on audiences. Yeah, well, I have to say, I'm just just to be clear, the stuff. I mean, you and I met when you headlined uh, the showcase for my Titter students, and I have to say that your your songs are hilarious, but you're just as funny around the the music as you are when you're singing. So, you know, I think the world's your oyster, Ashley. Actually, you can you can you can do either. You can do. Either. So, what was it like when you first started writing material? When you first started stand up, how easy, difficult did you find that process? Any idiot can write bad jokes, and I did a lot of that at the beginning. And again, I think it's a personality trait. A friend of mine said rather unkindly of me, the thing about Ashley is he's always practicing his material on us. And the truth is, I'm not. I am like this in real life. I'm always 
trying to find a joke, trying to find a, another way of looking at something. So actually writing material can be quite straightforward. You, if you ignore the possibility that it is, it is not going to be funny, you can put any old stuff down and, and learn it and perform it. I think the, the difficulty is editing and tuning it. And what any stand-up comedian has to do is, is face the fact that their first 30, 50, maybe even 100 gigs are going to be absolutely dreadful. And I, th I think what you do, and what I've done with, with other, other groups as well, is you give people enough feedback and enough uh, skills to accelerate them through maybe 15, 20, 30 gigs worth of, of knowledge and experience. But the bottom line is you still have to pretty much try and fail and keep trying and keep failing in order to get that thing that makes you funny that you can then amplify and, and work into your future stuff. So the truth is, I went around the country for thousands of miles, stinking rooms out. It was brilliant. <laughs> it's, it is all about, unfortunately, it's all about stage time. I think, it, you know, that's what gets someone to be a great comedian is is that practice and but one thing you said there was um really important i think not just for writing jokes but i think well for, for using jokes in in speaking but also i think looking at things you you said i i work out how to look at things a different way and i think that's where for me a lot of the comedy comes from from comedians and also you know making something stand out in a speaking environment is being able to take something and look at it you know maybe take a 360 degree look at it and find the thing that's funny or that's uh, important or will engage people in the audience is that something that you know asking those sorts of questions is that part of your process um, when I have a process it is sometimes um, some some things just come to you fully formed and so it, it's not really a question of doing anything other than doing what comes naturally so uh, this idea of actually being surprising being out of the ordinary I think that's really important just to engage your audience whether you're being funny or not and so you know I was like if a fat bloke walks on, on stage and says aren't I fat everyone's gonna go fine, who cares? Maybe says, aren't I into the Care Bear dolls? Suddenly that's like, wow, I couldn't have guessed that by looking at you. And now we can have a conversation about what that's about. So I do think that you have to avoid the, the flaming obvious unless what you're doing is rabble rousing the flaming obvious to a bunch of flaming obvious supporters. It, you know, choose your audience. Yeah. And, and what, what was your first, can you remember back to your first gig? What, what, what was it like? So uh, there, are, there, are, there are two first gigs. So, uh, so the first one I, I did uh, before I joined the comedy circuit, there was a comedy competition being organized at university and someone said, oh, you should do this, you'd be funny. And so using a, a bunch of bits and bobs I pulled from comedian sets who I quite liked, I went on stage and just rattled out some stuff that I knew would be funny and, and did really well. I think I think I won that competition. If I didn't win, I came sort of second or third or something. I, I certainly left with a prize. I also left with a stolen car stereo. So, you know, <laughs> uh, potato, potato. Um, I'm curious about that. I might follow that one up. Uh, well, indeed. Uh, so in, in that respect, um, I suddenly had this party trick I could do, which really played to my, my sort of sense of um, using humour to... to to help me in situations. So I, I, I followed that up while at university by pulling out the stand-up stuff whenever there was an opportunity, you know, a handful of times. And that's what set me thinking, right, I'm gonna do this. And I went to the Edinburgh Festival, saw lots, saw lots of comedian shows and said, I'm gonna come back and do a show. How hard can it be to stand <laughs> for an hour and entertain a room full of people? Look, they're laughing, this is great, I can do that. Um, 
And then back in, was it, whenever it was, 2002, when this um, reinventing myself occurred, went to the Edinburgh Festival again, saw loads more shows and said, right, next year I'm coming back. And did some research. How hard can this be? Oh, £10,000 to put a show on at Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's a bit steep, but this is my big break, I said to myself. Um, said to a friend of mine, I said, I'm going to go to Edinburgh next year with a stand-up show. He said, really? How much is that going to cost? I said, £10,000. He said, how much of your mortgage is that? <laughs> You're talking about risking for a, for a stand-up show. I said, yeah, but it'd be a great story to tell my grandchildren. He said, you won't be able to afford grandchildren. <laughs> I said, I will show him. And so I, I, I thought, right, what I'll do is I'll do two or three gigs just to warm up and then I can do my hour at Edinburgh. Oh, my. So come January 2003, I went to do the Laughing Horse New Act of the Year competition at some arts centre up north, um, I forget where now, somewhere like, um, uh, somewhere like Tynemouth or something like that. And um, went on stage and about 10 minutes of not getting much response from the audience later, I came off feeling a funny feeling and I thought, oh, I must be getting nervous after the fact. No, I was dying inside. I can now identify that. <laughs> Um, and what I learned from that whole experience was it's going to take more than a couple of gigs to warm up. Yeah, that first Edinburgh show, you think, oh, blimey, I didn't do enough. <laughs> I need so, to do more. It took, before I did my first solo show at Edinburgh, I, I think it was eight years or seven years to my first solo show. I did, I did other things. I wrote a musical with a friend, which we did in 2004, which is a very different animal to a, to a stand-up show. And I, I did various um, stand-up sets or, or things at the Fringe uh, pretty much from that point forwards. But actually to do a, a first solo hour, that is a big thing and something which a lot of comedians jump into too soon. And I am glad I waited. Yeah, no, that's good. I think, uh, I, think I did mine probably a little too soon. But um, you, learn, I, it's, you learn loads from it. I mean, that's the, the thing. You, you know, doing 20 shows in a row for a month to... Um, you know audiences i've done free and paid i don't have you done paid uh, uh, so the, the show i did in 2004 i paid for oh did i pay for it i was writing <laughs> i was writing checks that looked like years except they were years from the future um <laughs> but it's expensive um, as, as it happens that, that that show we did which is the underbelly um we people came we worked very hard to promote it it was um it was its own thing and um, it was called The Musical. And it was about two guys trapped in the musical they were writing. Oh, and, brilliant. And um, we kind of knew what we were doing. We, um, we, we found our audience. They came along. There, there were some lovely shows. And people came back. So. And is that, we, is that still going, that musical, musical uh, at all? Or? Uh, were people to Google for it, I think they'd find a video of it online. But we've, we only performed it um, about three or four times after Edinburgh. And we have, we have hung up our appropriate um, <laughs> instruments and clothing on that one. So for anybody who does go and research the musical video, um, I apologize for what happens in about 51 minutes in. But Ooh, you'll have to take your chances on that one. That's <laughs> a teaser. Excellent. And, and how, do you, how do you come up with your ideas for material? Because I, I mean, you, I always say to my students, sometimes, and you've mentioned this, sometimes the hand of God will just reach down and give you a great idea and a great joke. But more often than not, especially if you're, you know, gigging regularly, you're, you're on the circuit, you need to produce material. It doesn't just come to you. Um, how do you find your ideas? Is it looking around? Is it inside you? How, how you know, things in your life? How does, what works for you? So I, I think there are, there are three um, ways to find ideas. So the one you're describing, 
most here is the idea that we could just sit down and write something to order. And I think there are some very strong techniques for just doing the maths until you produce um, the right ideas. Um, I don't know if you've um, ever mentioned on your show Sally Holloway's book. I've read Sally Holloway's book, yes, so, yeah. Um, we should put a link to that because I've, I've recommended it to a few people and, it's a, it, and read it myself, it's a brilliant book. So Sally Holloway has some classic writing exercises you can do and that's something which I've, I've used myself and which um, if, you, if you have to produce jokes to order, that particular technique can, can work wonders. Um, but I think there are, there are two others. Sometimes, as I say, a, a, a gag just falls into your, into your mind fully formed. You just, I mean, you just suddenly see something differently. Um, one, of the jokes in, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the jokes in the musical um, was um, the, one of the characters was complaining about his lack of love life. And the other one says, um, what about that girl I told you about? She fancied you. And the person goes, she was a lesbian, which makes the audience laugh because laugh they think he's been set up. And then... <laughs> Um, the first guy goes, no, she was Lebanese. Oh, no. And uh, it's a, a simple little bit of work, wordplay. Always, <laughs> always, always worked in context, at least. I'm not saying it's that great a joke. But the reason that joke exists is I was walking past a Lebanese restaurant and suddenly the whole routine just <laughs> formed in my head. That, that's a joke there, I said. Um, and, then, and then sometimes it, it's more that you, you're in the middle of something and you just say, how could this be different? So... Um, I shouted at my daughter, stay on the seat, because she was standing up on a chair at uh, the, ta the table. And I thought, hang on a minute, that's the sort of thing James Brown might say. How can I make a routine out of that? And working, working backwards from stay on the seat uh, turned into a routine, which I think I did at your, at your club, did. about um, yeah. parenting being a bit like James Brown. And it's just literally forcing yourself to ask, how could that be different? That gives you that surprising thing that you can then um, frame in some, some sort of comic routine. But fundamentally, anything can be turned into into jokes if you if you look at it from a different perspective, find the gaps between facts or the gaps between ideas and join them up with something uh, fun and, uh, and interesting. Yeah, I think incongruence is a big thing I talk about. So putting things together which shouldn't go together, but, you know, that makes people laugh in itself to, you know, to inco you know, illogical things in the same in the same <clears throat> same joke. Brilliant. And and to you set aside time for writing do you have like a, a, a you know a routine that you you know maybe an hour a day or do you just you know as it comes or how does it work for you in terms of actually setting time aside uh, these days it's as it happens and it's not as frequently as it should be this is where i confess my complete <laughs> lack of motivation to write new stuff at the moment it tends to be that some you know, some silly idea i'm playing with will get tried out but i don't actively sit down and do it um for me if I've got a deadline, that makes it a lot easier to write. And so um, when, I, when I had my first solo show booked, I found myself very, very motivated to sit down and do lots of writing and to pull the ideas together. It was quite useful for me that I, my first few shows were very strongly themed. And so you could immediately write a, a scaffolding skeleton structure for the show and then just work out how to fill in the blanks um, and actually having some question to answer with your writing is a lot easier than just writing on a blank page. Yeah. Um, but then what I also find is useful is, um, particularly for trying out new material, is to say, right, I've got the new material gig booked, so it's the night before, I better have something to try out at this <laughs> new material. Night. And so writing rapidly without being self-conscious 
when you know you actually have to. All of that stuff can, can yield good results. Because otherwise what happens is you get caught up in the self-censoring, the self-editing. You think, oh, this isn't ready yet. And you, you sort of work at it slowly and slowly and slowly. But actually saying, no, this has to be done by that deadline. Stop worrying about it. Just do something and polish it up a little bit before you then go and try it out. But that makes it happen really quickly. Brilliant. No, that's yeah. Deadlines are deadlines are very useful for creativity. That's, that necessity is the mother of invention. I think that probably goes with that. Excellent. And then, so the, the the material and the writing is one kind of half of it, and the other side of it is actually performing and delivering jokes on stage. Have you found that that um, your skills and ability? Obviously, they must have done developed over time. Is there any big things that you've noticed about your performance changing as you've got more experience? Well, I think, you know, I've been doing stand-up for about 15 years. And so something has changed over that time. And, and some of it is me. I'm, I'm just a different person than the guy I was 15 years ago. And the, the, the single biggest thing is confidence. So you have to be, uh, stand-up particularly is a confidence trick. And you have to be able to stand in the middle of a, a sea of people and dominate that situation and know that you can. And it's very easy to say that, okay, but what if I'm, well, if I find it intimidating, how do I deal with that? And what you have to know is that just acting confident, just knowing how to convince yourself that you're in a strong, confident position is most of the battle. Uh, there's a strange psychological feedback loop that works that if you are acting a certain way, you just start to feel that way, even if actually you, you, you weren't feeling it before. So if you plant yourself firmly in front of people with your you know, feet nicely apart and in a sort of powerful position and talk as slowly as it takes to catch their attention deliberately, after a while, you, you see yourself as this confident person. And so you, you feel that confidence. And so I think knowing how to behave in all those situations, which comes out of having done it you know, hundreds and hundreds of times over a very long period. So I've been identifying with myself as being able to do it for so long that I kind of expect I can probably do it, even if it's um, uh, even if it's apparently difficult to learn. Um, all of that makes get the, the contract works on yourself first, and then because you seem convinced, the audience don't have the heart to necessarily burst that bubble. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's a there's a great book which I talked about, I think, in episode one of this show which is uh, by russ harris and it's called the confidence gap and he talks about how the actions of confidence need to come first and the feelings of confidence come later which is pretty much what you're you're saying i mean there's other ways of saying it but i think that's right and when uh, you know you, when the when the compare gives you the stage you've got to take it exactly owning the stage is a massive part of this absolutely so um I haven't read that book and maybe I should follow that one up. There's a book by Richard Wiseman called Tear It Up, which talks about the same thing. It's about putting your, effectively influencing yourself by the way that you act so that you then feel the thing you want to feel. And you're absolutely right. This, um, the one bit of advice I give to newer acts or people who are trying it for the first time when it comes to taking the stage is to take a moment between reaching the stage and doing what you want to do in other words you set the room and yourself up for how you want it to be as opposed to kind of bumbling on quickly grabbing the microphone and passively trying to um, react to the situation you found yourself in if so i'm holding um, people won't be able to see this on your audio <laughs> podcast but i am good. i'm currently i'm either making a rude gesture or holding a microphone in my hand because i'm visualizing <laughs> the microphone's jiggling up and down <laughs> um, 
But actually, that's the point, is you have to get into your, your battle position before you take control of the audience. And it's probably the same thing that happens before you start a dance or before you do a tennis serve. You get into the right frame of yes. mind, you get into the right position, and then actually you can make your first move. And you have a lot more time on stage than you feel like you do when you take to the stage. You know, the, the audience will wait 10 seconds for you to start if, if, if you want them to. Whereas often people feel suddenly under the spotlight and start panicking and, and getting trapped in the headlights. And you've got loads of time and you can do it however you like. Yeah, that is that is absolutely true. I think um, I don't know if you've heard of Tony Robbins. He's a, like a massive motivational speaker, like one of the biggest ones in the world. And he jumps up and down on a trampoline before he goes on stage to perform. Um, in most comedy venues I've been at, you wouldn't have the space backstage to have a trampoline. But you know, whatever works to get in that mindset. I did. Um, I did once find a, ba a trampoline backstage at some theatre gig in Darwin and dragged it on. Um, and the guitar lead was long enough. I stood on this trampoline on stage playing guitar while bouncing. And <laughs> I think the audience had failed to grasp that it was me just horsing around with something I happened to have found backstage for a short while. They thought, this is what he does. <laughs> <laughs> Plays guitar while bouncing. It's not very good. It's like, no, I'm just horsing about. This is great. How does he fit that in his car to take to gigs? Well, I, I, I would have to say managing to bounce and play in time with each other. That, that, was, a, that was a big challenge and they, did, they, they failed to appreciate it over in Darwin in the northwest. <laughs> Excellent. And one of the things, so um, with, with speakers, and I guess with, with comedy as well, there are people who kind of go into different um, areas um, and some that do both. So between emceeing uh, gigs and actually speaking or being an MC in comedy and being an act. And, you know, some, there are different skills, I think, between the two, but you do both. In your, in your opinion, what makes a good MC? How and how is it different from a normal act? So uh, there are lots of ways you can do emceeing and some MCs kind of walk on, do some admin announcements and then launch into the first bit of their material or then stop and introduce an act and, and rinse and repeat. Um, I prefer the MC style of bantering. So you walk up onto the stage and you, you literally have no agenda. Maybe you've got a, a line that makes the audience laugh. I usually do something about a stage dive or something just to show them I can tell a joke. <laughs> Um, but generally speaking, the, the idea that you're going to talk to the people in the room and be completely in the present tense and not so much rely on stuff you would have written down off stage to trot out on stage so much as um, in the moment find the right thing to say. I think that that's a brilliant thing. And for me particularly, it's great because as a musical comedian, I've got to come on, plug a guitar, come in, plug a guitar in, tune it up get it all sounding right, worry about the lead falling out and the battery level, all that nonsense. Um, as an MC, I kind of rock up with no fixed agenda and think, well, I'm going to jump down this ski slope and I'll see if I can stay on the skis whilst I go down. <laughs> um, and what you, what you end up realizing is how much, fun, how, many, how much funny stuff actually has to be in the moment and how you can contrive amusing things to happen if you simply have the confidence and the the attention span to, to do that. So uh, for example, the last gig I did, which was on Saturday night in Bristol, um, I spoke to two people and they both were called Steve. Um, and then I spoke to a third person who decided to call himself Steve as well to join in the rest. And that oh. was it. Everybody else I spoke to in the audience had to be called Steve. <laughs> so we had a room full of Steves and, and silly things like that happening. I, 
are obviously one-offs, except they're not one-offs because I've been in that situation before. It's uh-huh. another audience. <laughs> uh-huh. Right, interesting. <laughs> that, was, that was an in-joke for the evening. And knowing that you can kind of make that sort of daftness out of nothing, I think that's, that's the power of any comedian. That's the power of any speaker, actually, is to find something happening right in front of them and work it into whatever it is they're trying to do. Um, and knowing that you just have to trust that if you play the game, you will get results. I think that's scary if you want to be really prepared and preordained and everything. But at the same time, it's very empowering. You kind of know you've got that magic trick you could go and do, and it's probably going to work. It is scary. It's, you know, it's, you know I, I do improv as, as well, but I still find that part of it incredibly. You, know, you have to be brave and, and, and go with it. And you know, that's, I think that's quite a hard thing to do. Although it, what I find, I don't know if you experience this, is that if you are present and in the moment, you've, it's almost like the t- it's slightly lower bar. People will laugh because they're appreciating that you're creating stuff live and in the moment they'll they'll find it funnier actually than some of the material that's pre pre you know pre-done for them i think i think they know it's genuinely magic or at least they, they feel it's genuinely magic if it looks like you haven't prepared yeah um and in fact I, you've got to be careful because sometimes you can be going much faster than the room and it's not as good so one of the things i've had to teach myself when i can see a joke that's maybe I don't know, three feet away from the Mm. situation I'm in, is to take people one foot away, then two foot away, in order to get to that third foot. Because otherwise, they see a jump, but they can't follow it. Yes. But sometimes, actually, you you can think yourself so far ahead that you you have to bring the audience with you on the journey, and that can amplify the results of a a leap of imagination you've you've just been able to spontaneously make. Yeah. it, it, it's great to do, and, and it's, um, there are a few tips around that. For example, the first thing you think of when you're responding to something can often be the most obvious and the least interesting. So you kind of then say, okay, well, it should be the second thing I think of, but that's often too clever and too smug. <laughs> so it's about the third thing that comes to mind that you should be trying to go with in terms of the, the improvisation or the, or the direction. Oh, that's, really, that's really useful. Yeah, I've not heard that one before. There we go. Now. You do comedy, but you also are a software engineer by by day, almost like a superhero um, with two two personas. How how have you found the comedy has helped you, or maybe it hasn't uh, in your day job? How has it affected it? Uh, I occasionally leave uh, Easter eggs in the uh, in the code for other people to find. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm very bored, some of the uh, some of the data we used to test with is usually about something daft. Uh, but I, I don't think that's really what you're talking about. So as a, um, as a software engineer itself, and there, there's limited ways that humor can help. In my particular role, I'm a software development manager. So what I actually also do is work with the teams, work with the individuals to, to get them uh, on message, to get them able to, to deliver to the best of their abilities. And I think you can use humor a few ways in the workplace. One thing that I use it to do is to sort of undermine the, the command and control elements of being in a managerial position. I don't, I don't necessarily want to be everyone's mate because that can be very needy and uh, <laughs> unhelpful. <laughs> but I also, I, I don't want to be throwing, throwing around my authority. What I'd rather do is create a, a creative, fun, interesting atmosphere and have people do the best. And if you can use humor 
positively with people. Some bosses use humor to victimize people or to show their alpha status. And I see right through that and it absolutely, absolutely rankles with me. But if you can use humor to big people up, to, to give people a warm feeling, then you create an environment where people can, can give of their best. And similarly, if you're in a situation that's going off the rails, so if you're in a meeting that's starting to um, get distracted or whatever else, if you can toss in a, an acerbic remark that makes people laugh, after the laugh has finished, the room has reset and you can get the, the room back onto the, the, the right message. So I think that's something teachers would do sometimes is, you know, some, some students playing up, the teacher takes control of the situation, makes the room laugh at whatever's just happened. And then when that dies down, again, you can bring control back. And I think probably that's where my MCing skills have helped me most in the workplace is <laughs> just bringing a room back to order, but doing it kindly rather than uh, the way you might deal with a stag who's being a bit too drunk and leery and needs putting down a few notches. <laughs> I, think, I think that point about you know, using people, uh, comedy to put people down is, is, is a really good, you know, good one, important one. I mean, there's a, going back to MCs, I've seen a lot of MCs who I don't like that style myself that, that are, you know, say nasty things to people in the audience and put them down. And I, there's a, there's a, if people heckle and they won't shut up, then, then maybe there's a time and a place for that. But you know, that, using comedy to hurt people isn't a, a great thing and if you're in the workplace you know I think you, those points you you made are, are brilliant you know you can do it in such a way that people feel good about themselves and and will and will laugh I think that I don't know if you've ever seen Ellen DeGeneres her show yes she yeah. uses comedy really well in a way that if she gets a laugh but it's never at anyone's expense potentially only hers but I, yeah I think that's those are brilliant points to make well, I think I, I, I've seen a lot of MCs um, sort of go on stage and choose a victim for the evening. And mm -hmm. that, that can be very effective. It brings a room quickly to order, but it does feel very cruel. It feels very unkind. Usually the difficulty as an MC is you do need something to hook into and taking the mickey out of something is a very British uh, tradition. It's <laughs> a very good way of doing it. But the secret I think is to, is to create something to take the mickey out of. So, um, going back to Saturday night, there was a fellow in the audience who sounded a little bit like Bruce Forsyth. So you can sort of immediately work, work the fact that he's Bruce Forsyth into, into the thing you're taking the mickey out of. And it's nothing to do with him. It's, very, it's a very tangential thing. Yeah. There's an emceeing trick called in, um, endowment where you, you look at the way someone's sitting or something and say, hmm, you're obviously the king of Manchester. And then, then you start playing with a, a character you've created. And yeah. even the so-called victim is protected from the attacks that you're making in a comic way. So I, I think all of those are quite safe, safe ways to, um, to, to take the mickey out of someone. But often it's just it's better to, to turn it on yourself or to make it that you're... Um, having fun with what you're perceiving to happen rather than making a victim and, uh, and you know, scoring points off them. Yeah. Fantastic tips. And, and what are we're talking about tips? Have you got any tips that you uh, can think of that, you know, from doing comedy that you think will help people doing speaking and presentations, anything that sort of, you know, that really sort of sticks out to you? So I think the, the, the important thing is to be prepared um, so it sounds silly, obviously, for something that's improvised, but that, how do you prepare for that? But I think even seeing a lot of it done and going through those ideas in your head 
um, of how you might deal with the situation can prepare for improvisation. Though ultimately, the best preparation is do it loads of times and then you'll be prepared. Um, but for any form of anything where you're going to stand in front of a room for 10 minutes, 20, half an hour, whatever else, you, you do need to have some sort of battle plan, something that takes you from A to Z. So as, as, we're, as we're talking in the background here, I'm looking at a, a slideshow that I'm going to be um, using as the backdrop to a uh, presentation I'm giving on Wednesday evening. And I have things I want to say, but I want to be able to be sure that the narrative takes me very, cle very clearly from one thing to another without dwelling too much time on the unimportant things and, and all that sort of thing. So that sort of pre preparation, not word for word necessarily, but at the higher level, I think that means that you, you have the confidence to, to know where you're supposed to be at, at which time. And the individual words, you can always fathom them out as you go along. But the narrative is not something you want to be improvising if you're going to be with a room of people for half an hour or an hour or whatever else. Oh, that's um, brilliant. And so here's, here's a strange way I use that this, uh, this weekend. Uh, um, yesterday, my daughter had a fifth birthday party and my wife dressed me up as a pirate <laughs> and said, entertain the children's for, uh, children for an hour. Nice one. And I watched a whole bunch of parents who've only ever seen me in the uh, schoolyard um, look absolutely aghast when I walked out as a pirate thinking this is going to be embarrassing. Car crash. <laughs> Car oh my God, they think they're funny. And then what actually happened is we took the kids on a 40 minute adventure around the same community center going around in circles. And there was always something happening. And although nothing panned out exactly to plan, um, there was a plan and the kids went with it because the plan was stronger than their individual objection. <laughs> And a few of them are now trying to work out how they can book me for their children's birthday party. Oh, the answer is never again. <laughs> Five-year-olds. And, and so ha uh, having a plan was one of the secrets to that success. Second secret, I think, to, uh, to speaking success is make sure there's something in there for you. Because if there's the bit you really want to do, the bit you can't wait until it happens, that enthusiasm, that energy will carry you through to that bit and then the, the happiness of doing it will carry beyond so yesterday with the kids um we all went on a pirate voyage which was great um but then everybody got scurvy <laughs> and <laughs> we genuinely handed out limes to cure their scurvy <laughs> so there was a period of time with all of these uh, five-year-olds wandering around with limes in their hand kind of going we don't know why we've got these limes but we don't want to have scurvy <laughs> that was one for me that was good. <laughs> it was excellent. You could have, you could have, I remember that one. If I ever want to do a kid's party with healthy food and, and you, I know you've done some coaching of people use on using humor. Haven't you? You told me about this. I think when we, we were at the gig, what, what was that? What was that all about? So yeah, I, I did, um, I've done a couple of things. There's a thing in Oxford and a few other um, of the university cities called Bright Club. Uh, Bright Club is where you take academics and you train them the art of stand-up comedy so they can talk about their working life or their research in the form of a stand-up set to present to people who are interested in their, their work, but pre present it in a way you wouldn't normally present um, your material. So whereas somebody who's quite a serious expert on worms might normally talk about statistics and populations and whatever else in the worm community. Um, we, we had her on stage talking about the, uh, the love life of worms and, and <laughs> what, 
and singing singing songs that might re might represent how how worms mate or something and and that opportunity to to talk about your particular thing from, from a completely different point of view that's that's how bright club works but clearly you're taking people who have no interest in being comedians normally and trying to get them to act like a comedian and out of that somebody whom we trained um, to be able to do those sorts of things said what you do as, as comedians and what you're teaching us here might be quite useful for some of the lecturers at the university who are having a little bit of difficulty with their own personality type being quite bookish university types Kelsey Breeze <laughs> and the sort of classes they're having to teach who are not necessarily paying attention who are maybe making the lecturers feel some of their own um, insecurities rather than necessarily they're getting message across and so I took a, a room for about a dozen people through a couple of hour training course where we said okay how would a stand-up comedian be able to dominate a room and how can you take those same things to use them to dominate your room in order for you to get the message across which is the the, you know, the, the content of your lectures and we, we very much got them to um, bring up their fears and then just matched each one of the fears that, that the, the teacher would have or that the, uh, the questions the teacher would have with the sorts of skills that stand-up uses to solve those self-same problems. The most important one being, why don't you stand there in your own space, talk at your own pace, modifying the dynamics of the way you speak in order to constantly reach out and hook in the listener and not care what they think about you. And it's silly just to give people permission to do their thing, but... That's essentially what it's all about. That's brilliant. Who, who, who came up with the name Bright Club? And is it any relation to Fight Club? Because in, <laughs> in my head, I just went, I went straight there. Is that, was, that a, was that deliberate? So the, the first rule of Bright Club is that we don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> exactly. uh, no, um, so Bright Club is uh, originated at, I'm going to say UCL, but it might be King's College. It's certainly one of the oh. London colleges. Um, started this thing called Bright Club a few years ago. And then... Uh, Oxford's one is kind of a franchise of it so uh, we, we didn't invent it we simply copied it. We just had a picture of soap and yeah fighting and anyway anyway never mind moving on <laughs> that's just me. That's fine uh, we, we, we have invited Brad Pitt to present but he's, uh, he's, <laughs> he's a little bit, little bit busy um, <laughs> busy being half of Brangelina or whatever. <laughs> what I'm going to try and do at the end of our interview is put in one of your songs um and uh, so people can have a listen to to the audio of it and obviously they can uh, there's videos of you doing it but where where can people um see you, you do comedy if they would like to see you do comedy um is it around the southwest is it all over the place can they go to your website and find out where you are yeah, absolutely. So um, I keep my gig list up to date-ish on um, www.ashleyfreeze.co.uk. Um, Ents24 also knows who I am, so you can subscribe to them and you'll get updates. Um, and I, I, I am all over the place. I, I do seem to have a, a resident MC ship over in Bristol at this uh, Ripraw comedy. Um, so that's, that's one where I'm most likely to be found. I would say subscribe to Ents24, look on my website and uh, do feel free to watch videos, but I can't be held responsible for things <laughs> on the internet you find that you find offensive. So, <laughs> Cool. And um, before, before I've got some standard questions that I would like to ask you and ask all guests, 
before we move on to those standard questions, is there anything else that you can think of, you know, that burning thing that maybe hasn't come up that you think will really help people, you know, use humor or comedy to make their speaking better? Yes. So look at the room, play the room you have, not the room that's in your head, not the room you prepared for. And imagine this situation. Imagine you were going to tell a story to your mates about what you did last night. You'd use certain words, you'd use a certain tone of voice, you'd use a certain um, a certain set of emphases on, on the different events that occurred. And now imagine you told the same story to your grandmother. You tell probably the same set of facts, <laughs> the, same, um, the same opinions even, the same ups and downs, but you just do it differently. You'd find a different way to make it make sense to her. And that's exactly what you need to do with any room you face. Even if you're going to use word to word the same thing, the inflection, the emphasis, the, um, the engagement varies depending on the room that's actually in front of you. So you need to be prepared in order to employ this new skill of making it make sense to the room in front of you because you don't want to be searching for the next word because you need to know that so that you can, you can focus more on the audience. But if you're able to adapt your demeanor to the actual people that you're engaging with, then it will make sense. That's fantastic tip. Really, really good one. Thank you very much for that. Now, my standard questions. Now, the usual questions I ask are, what's the best thing that's ever happened to you through speaking? But I'm interested in the best thing that comedy's done for you. And also, if you could chuck in, what is your best gig and why? What's the best thing comedy's ever done for me? <laughs> <laughs> like the <Hello>. Romans. <laughs> that's a very, very good question. Um, well, now you ask. I'm not sure comedy's ever done anything for me. Yeah. <laughs> Are you in debt? <laughs> what, the hell, what the hell have I been doing? Um, I think that I think stand-up is a drug um, in that every gig you encounter will either go well or badly, and it's partly in your control, it's partly not, but there's a risk every time. And I think those gigs that you drive away from thinking, I nailed that, and... I, it might have gone wrong. I think those are the ones that that are that make it all worthwhile. And the ones you drive away from, licking your wounds, thinking, "Well, that was weird." Uh, <laughs> I think those are the ones that 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 teach you how vulnerable you are, but also kind of bring you crashing to earth to stop you be, becoming a bit of a diva. And so uh, it's difficult to find uh, a gig where I, I thought, "Well, that's it. My life is is better for having done this." But I have been in some situations which are just ludicrous uh, there was there was one particular gig i tell this story of the gig that went went very very well but i tell it with a with my tongue firmly in my cheek um important bit of information backstage comedians aren't supposed to talk about doing well at gigs it's a real no-no you're supposed to talk about the gigs that were absolutely terrible because <laughs> those are the stories everybody else wants to hear any yeah. anybody who's saying oh yeah last night i completely nailed it carried on the shoulders of the audience <laughs> i've become the king of sulfur uh, that sort of thing actually it, it it's no one no one gains by those stories and those those people who tell those stories soon learn not to um so better to talk about the disasters but there's one gig where it clearly went well and um, in fact, I think that was a gig where I realized that I, I'd become a, a fellow friend and comedian with some of the other guys in the room. And I want you to know the gig went well, but it wouldn't have mattered what I'd done. I could have gone up there and stayed silent. It was still <laughs> going to go well. That room was just in a really, really good mood. Yeah. And it was one of the first times I was ever slightly frightened on stage because it was going so well rather than frightened because it was going so badly. Um, in that I, I was doing my stuff. They were laughing heartily. I finished one of my songs. and this. 
applause went up in the end of the, at the end of the song as it always does that's just convention it's not a real applause for other comedians listening it's just it's just um you know uh, all songs end in applause um it's applause in the middle of a song that counts guys um and then this cheer followed the applause this kind of whoop and it got louder and louder and kind of filled the room. And I was slightly thrown backwards in, on the stage because I just didn't know what to do with an audience that's cheering that much. It, um, if I can be slightly indelicate, it feels, it feels like I might have, if somebody was, say, on a, a one-night stand with, with somebody who's a little bit more enthusiastic than they used to, <laughs> who was trying to encourage them to behave in a kind of a, a leery way they're not accustomed to, um, they would probably say to that person what I said to this audience. Um, I said, and I quote, yeah, you love it. Um, <laughs> which sort of broke the mood a bit, uh, but they, they were kind of cheering for more, even, even though I hadn't, I hadn't even finished the set yet. And, and I, I had to say to them, look, I will do more if you just shut up so I can actually start the next. So, so clearly, you know, as experiences go, there was a lot of love in the room and I was kind of a convenient focal point for it. But again, I want to emphasize, it wasn't me doing it. They were loving everything that I did. Oh, I'm not sure that's all, that's all uh, true. <laughs> it's not entirely false in that if I'd stunk the place out, they'd have stopped. But at the same time, I didn't have to do very much. And certainly the me that was doing it was nowhere near as good a comedian as I'd like to be. So um, what I, I did is I walked off stage and obviously it had gone quite well, but you're not allowed to say, ooh, that went well to the comedians at the back of the room. Yeah. So I reached the back, kind of shell-shocked by the whole thing. One of the other acts just put his hand on my shoulder and went, oh, mate, so, oh, bad luck, mate. You nearly had them though, didn't you? And I was like, that's it. That's it. That's what I needed to hear. That's the one thing I can play with. I was like, yeah, you're right. So close, almost had them. Because... Uh, having somebody take the mickey out of you and acknowledge the, acknowledge the whole thing, but in, in a way which, um, which kind of really took the wind out of its sails. That was what I needed to bring me down <laughs> to, to avoid having to have the awkward conversation of kind of, yeah, well, that went well, didn't it? So I think that's probably Brilliant. a, a standout moment. And what about your, the, the worst gig you've ever done? Are, are, you, are you happy to share? Is it a painful memory? It's a good memory, actually. Um, so... The, the, the worst gig I ever did was when I was booed on at the Manchester Comedy Store Gong Show. And the reason I think it was such a good formative experience is that it broke that thing inside me that was frightened of what if it goes wrong. Uh-huh. So um, there was another act. I, I was another act who'd been on with an instrument and he had really failed to capture the, the mood of the audience, shall oh, we say. No. Uh, and in, in a gong show situation, the audience can effectively boo off an act and they have to leave the stage. There's three guys with cards, and if all three cards go up, that cards go up, then uh, the, the act has to leave. It's like the um, Coliseum, I, th- I feel. It, it, it is, very gladiatorial. And um, so I, I show up with my guitar, I'm just plugging it in, and two of the cards went up, and there's <laughs> boos going in the audience. And it's the, it was the first and hopefully only gig where I had to say as an opening line, but I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> oh, bless. Um, uh, and so I then set about doing my five minutes of material in order to try and win this room back. And the guy with the third card made eye contact at one point and kind of nodded at me as if to say, you're all right, mate. But basically, the rest of the room were needed winning over. And I think if you've, if you've gone into a situation where it's, it's the sort of nightmare that you're most worried about and you've come through it, um, and you realize that 
you know, what's the real worst thing that can, that can happen, which is you get to drive home feeling slightly foolish. Yeah. Once you've been through that, nothing can be worse. And so although it's you know, quite a bad gig in a lot of respects, actually, end of the day, that's it. I've done that now. Nothing much else can, can seem as bad. Yeah, that's true. I remember I had well, I had a slightly similar experience. I was doing the gong show at the Comedy Store in London. And I think it was late night. I was 17th on. I don't know if you've ever done that gig. Um, the audience were smashed and they'd all been blokes up to me. And the compere in his wisdom decided to bring me on by saying, and here's something we haven't had so far this evening, a woman. And it just went, and it, went, it didn't go so well. That's all I'm saying. I was just, oh dear. Anyway, moving on. It's one of those, one of those scars that I have. Um, now, the final question I have for you, I don't know if you've ever read a book called Think and Grow Rich by a chap called Napoleon Hill. Um, it's a good book. It's, uh, it's worth reading. And in it, he has this sort of fantasy mastermind, what you call mastermind group, where he sort of gets people from, you know, history and whatever together to sort of run ideas past and sort of, you know, put himself in their shoes, see what they say. If you could have three mentors, um, from history or you know alive or dead fictional non-fictional who would you choose and why this sounds like the sort of question you you need to prepare for doesn't it um not no not you're a smashing mc you won't ashley well uh, then pick I, the third I, one <laughs> <laughs> then what about the other two that's crazy <laughs> As, as an MC, I, I choose ridiculous things. I would like to have Katy Perry, so she can teach me how to deal with Russell Brand's uh, <laughs> attentions. And uh, uh, you, whenever, whenever I'm faced with thinking of famous people, my mind usually fills with female pop singers. I'm not usually a fan of them. <laughs> um, so uh, I think, I think let's start with Louis Armstrong. Ah. Oh. I, I think the thing about the thing about him is he was just this nice guy trying to ply his art that was it he was um at one stage at one stage he took a taxi home um to a house that his wife had bought whilst he'd been out touring and he'd obviously been very successful along the way and he got to this place and he was so kind of um humbled by this palatial place that his, his wife had bought with his um with the 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 amount of money he managed to raise as an artist that he invited the taxi driver in for a drink just because he was so sort of touched <laughs> by the, the experience. Uh, I think to, to be somebody who can be so nice and so humble and yet so dedicated to his art and actually doing something wonderful. I, I'm sure I could learn a lot from, from old Satchmo. Including how to talk with a very crack, uh, a very craggy voice because my voice is absolutely ripped today after <laughs> After yesterday being a pirate for oh, so long. Of course, that's where it's come from. Ah, ah, <laughs> indeed. Um, so there's one example. I, I I do find myself fascinated by the uh, the modern day um, the modern day entrepreneurs. I've, I've been become very addicted to a TV show called Shark Tank, ah. which is the US version of the Dragon's Den. Yeah. And um, there's a chap there's a chap in there called Mark Cuban. And I think I'd like to I'd like to understand the secret of his success as well. He's somebody who seems to be um, a decent fellow, a very very technically wise, at the same time just um, kind of able to play with the things he finds interesting. I think there's a lot to be learned uh, from the likes of him as well. I'm going to check him out, Mark Cuban. Okay. Mark Cuban. 
Um, and then as a final, final person, who, who do I most look up to? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go one, one last one for me. So I think the, the truth of the matter is, is that over the years, I've always been a cut price, poor imitation of the comedian Bill Bailey. And um, I, think that, I think that the chance to actually learn from the master, learn how he really ticks and uh, see how he approaches it, I think that would be great. Bizarrely, a friend of mine was doing a, um, a corporate um, event where Bill Bailey was the was the headliner and sent me a photo of, of, of Bill, um, which got into my photo collection. And for some reason, um, the algorithms at Amazon that organized my photos has tagged it as that he's my grandfather. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> found, well. some found some photos of my actual grandfather and popped Bill Bailey in the collection because he's obviously <laughs> the same man. So who knows, maybe there is a family link. It's more, more likely, no, more likely not. But again, Bill Bailey is somebody who's is, is obviously a very accomplished musician and is able to do fascinating, fun stuff with, with his music. But he's somebody who's just, again, got his own perspective, his own very unique take on things. And even from back when he, before he was particularly famous, back in the mid-90s to where we are now, he's just got this consistent thing he does. And I'm sure there's a lot to be learned from that. Brilliant. Those are, those are great, uh, great selections there. Bill Bailey's uh, fantastic, very, very funny. But I think you hold, hold your own, Ashley, I think. Uh, well, I, he, um, I'm no Bill Bailey, but then he's no Ashley Freeze. <laughs> exactly that, exactly that. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time and some brilliant tips there. Um, please go out and see Ashley live. He is incredibly funny. You'll be very pleased that you did so. Um, really, really thank you again. And have a wonderful Christmas, even though it's January, and uh, and enjoy. I'm going to also put, you know, if we can, if we can get the video of you being a pirate. Is there a video of you being a pirate? Thankfully not. Oh, no. <laughs> and and what um is there a song that you'd suggest that I play out the interview with? So this has been played on Mitch Ben's podcast as well. So do oh, do catch do catch Mitch Ben's podcast because he's a, another another of these big musical comedians. Yes, he is. He's doing a, a lot of work to share the. The songs of a lot of musical comics so uh, definitely check him out uh, this this song featured on on one of his podcasts recently um, it was based on the fact that um, Elton John uh, in his audience with Elton John show illustrated his writing technique because uh, obviously as a songwriter with a writing partner you have to have some way of sharing the work and what would have often happen is that Bernie Taupin would just write some lyrics on a bit of paper pop them through the door uh, or you know, drop them in and Elton would set them to, to music and, um, and then there'd be a, a hit song. And in fact, in the audience with show, he got, I think, a random bit of, um, random bit of text pr produced or handed to him and he just made a song out of it uh, wow. in, straight away, which is a trick I've also tried doing by singing the yellow pages at people. You'll find a clip, <laughs> you'll find a, a clip, a clip of that on, on the internet somewhere. And so I, I, looking at this same subject again for one of my shows, I sort of asked, hang on a minute, um, isn't there an Elton John song called I Think I'm Gonna Kill Myself? Was that actually a song that Bernie Taupin was submitting or was it, was it something else And Elton John just <laughs> set it to music anyway? If you're gonna be in a writing partnership where everything you write on a piece of paper is, is set to music by the other guy, what would happen if you tried to quit? <laughs> so that, that was the premise for the, for the song which I then, I then performed, which is about uh, Bernie Taupin's resignation letter being turned into a song. Um, I'll, I'll allow you to, to play a recording of that at the end, and I'm sure people can make of it what they will. That was brilliant. Again, thank you so much, Ashley Freeze. You take care. Have a fantastic day. 
and have a brilliant next Christmas, everyone. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that show and also the fantastic tips that Ashley uh, shared with us. It will help you on your speaking journey and, to be honest, if you do comedy as well. And as promised, we are going to play out the show today with Ashley's song about what might have happened if Elton John had mistakenly thought Benny Torpin's resignation letter should be turned into a number. But before we do, just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you could leave a rating for the show, that would be balls. And if you want to, come and find me on Twitter, at SarahArcher15. Let me know what you think about the show. And uh, that's it. Have a cracking week and here's the song for you. Elton, it's time to call it a day. You've made me lots of money. So they say this, well, it's a little bit funny. But this feeling inside says it's got quite absurd. Stop putting catchy music to my words Elton, are you reading this? Or just churning out a tune? I don't think you can resist You once got the number two with my shopping list Though it's breaking my heart Which I told you not to go and do This songwriting partnership is through and I don't appreciate you following me, watching everything I do. When I gave up cheese, you went and wrote Philadelphia Freedom. I had that affair with a dwarf ballerina girl, it was quite a big romance. I said, hold me close, you tiny dancer, and you stole that one from me too. Elton. I am gutted like a candle in the wind It seems to me that I've lived my life in your shadow So I'm gonna take up tennis instead I'll be a racket man, you'll see I won't let your songs go down on me Best wishes Lots of love burning Thanks for listening to the Speaking Club Podcast at www.saraharcher.co.uk